Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, joining me in our virtual studio from all across the planet are Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. We've got a full show today. Um, hey. Today is hey everybody. Uh, today is uh, September 25th, 2015, and our uh, our topic for today is food myths. We're going to be busting some food myths. Uh, talking a little bit about nitrates and nitrites in like bacon and cured meats, um, calories, uh, cholesterol, fiber, uh, the low-fat diet, uh, the myth that that's you know good for you, and a number of other things. So it should be a pretty interesting show. Um, we've got some some good topics here to cover. Um, so let's get started a little bit with some. Uh, Connecting the dots, um, if you guys are ready to dive into this a little bit, we have some items from the news uh, from the last couple of weeks. Uh, Tiffany, do you want to get us sure. started? We have this is another human living inside you. Yeah, it sounds so nasty and gross and creepy. Yeah. <laughs> it just gives me the chill just hearing you say that. Well, that's the name of the article. It's written by David Robson. It was on uh, BBC Future. So uh, besides having viruses and bacteria and other critters inside of you, um, there's also the potential that you're carrying bits of another human being inside of you. Especially if you're a twin, you're more likely to be carrying parts of your sibling in your body and your brain, and these bits might be influencing how you act. But through history, it's been shown that uh, through research that gut microbes produce neurotransmitters that alter your mood and they influence to make you crave certain foods that the critters might like. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of Toxoplasmosis gondii. That's a parasite that's found in cat poo that causes rats to be attracted to cats. Um, and toxoplasmosis has also been linked to schizophrenia and depression in human beings. But when you consider that uh, you can have bits of another human being inside of you, it gets more interesting. Um, there's some examples of conjoined twins who share a brain. And even non-conjoined twins um, have shared organs without knowing it. I'm not quite sure how that could happen. But hmm. Um, they said that 8% of non-identical twins and 21% of triplets have two blood groups. Um, one blood group is produced by their own cells and one is produced by alien cells absorbed from their twin, and it kind of makes them into a chimera in a sense. Hmm. And they said that uh, chimerism is one explanation for why twins are more likely to not be right-handed. So even if you're not a twin, it gets, I mean, it's still pretty gross because <laughs> um, it's possible that you could have started off as two fetuses in the womb womb, and one fetus aborted and the living fetus absorbed the cells of the other one and carried uh. the genetic blueprints. 
So say your mother had children before you, there's a chance that cells from your older sibling stuck around in your mother's body and they made their way into your body after you were conceived. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, adults can even acquire human invaders. Um, There's another study that found that 63% of women were harboring male cells. And the researchers speculated that the male DNA lodged in the woman's brains could have been from giving birth to sons, and the son's stem cells made its way into the mother's brain. But there was another article on Scott from a while ago called Be Careful Who You Sleep With, and this kind of made me think of it. And in that uh, article, there was a study that showed that women carry the DNA of their sexual partners. So it doesn't matter if the women had female children, male children, or no children, miscarriages or abortions, 21% of the women in that study had male DNA inside them. So they concluded that it was probably from sexual intercourse. And you can suck up male DNA and make it a part of your body. (laughs) I wonder if that has anything to do with... I wonder if that has anything to do with um, uh, gender identity confusion. I mean, because that's certainly mm. a very real phenomena. Maybe. Yeah. I could and, yeah, I could. And I did notice that, um, you know, tweens, they're more likely to be left-handed. The ones I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, well, that's, that's, that's really sad, though. If you have if you have a sibling that's a real jerk, <laughs> you might have some of their DNA inside you. Yeah, don't tell me about it. Might be a real uh, issue having a jerk living inside you rather than having a, a nice person <laughs> living inside <Yeah>. you. <laughs> well, it puts a whole new perspective on your thoughts that not your own or. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tricky too because I mean, what exactly could you do about that? You know, if you I mean, if you did have some way of actually determining that yes, there are in fact these alien cells living in you, and uh, that like part part of you are not actually you. Like what you know, if, in the situation where it's viruses or bacteria, at least there's something that you could try and do about that. But if mm-hmm. you actually have incorporated cells of another being inside you, like what exactly could you do about that? Self emulate. <laughs> Jeez. You do, I know, you do meditation so as to strengthen mm. your your self-will. And I don't know, mm-hmm. there are DNA changes when you meditate. So who not, we could speculate, you know, that some of the DNA changes are related to strengthening your own self versus yeah. mm-hmm. the other several miscellaneous parts in you. Yeah, no, I think that's probably a good uh, a, a good method of it, you know, just trying to, you know, from all of uh, Gurdjieff's work, he talks about how we have many different personalities living inside us and doing the work, as it's called, is a way of kind of, uh, you know, strengthening your true self. So maybe this is, this, this is just one manifestation of this, that, you know, there are these kind of other cells in you that are, are influencing you in some way and that by doing meditation and, you know, changing your diet and all these kinds of things are ways to kind of strengthen your true self and uh, kind of get rid of some of these other things. 
I don't think we'll see a lot of science on that in the near future, but it's it's uh, <laughs> I, I think it's a good good uh, good theory and, and something you could go with. Yeah. Totally. Or maybe I, you I can use too, specially that... designed magnets to kind of draw out the foreign DNA and leave no <laughs> I bet those will be popular. Yeah. Or maybe, Ooh, maybe using uh, some therapy. kind of modified <laughs> modified rice machine or something like that. Just get in there and zap all those foreign cells. Sounds like we've discovered an untapped market here for DNA magnets. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> that, that makes me think, too, the bit about the twins. Uh, I wonder if that has anything to do with the psychic connection between twins that's mm. often been uh, discussed. Yeah. Or even between parent and child. Yeah, Yeah, because if you consider what we briefly mentioned last week's show, quantum entanglement, like if you're sharing Mm. cells and one of your cells donates an electron to the other cell and those two electrons still move in unison, Mm. that's freaky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so we have to find a way to uh, influence our electron spin. Yes, the magnets. Yes, magnets, yeah. All right, I'm going to start working on a logo for DNA magnets. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, let's uh, let's see. Let's move on to our next one here. We have another semi-freaky topic. Erica, do you want to tell us about test tube chicken? Like the the chicken and the egg or the test tube? So more little mad, creepy science. Um, There was an article in Civil Eats uh, on September 14th by Leilani Clark. Move over test tube burger. There's a lab-grown chicken breast in the works. And uh, talk about the strange factor. (laughs) Fracture. (laughs) Um, The research is still in its infancy, but an Israeli scientist hopes to bring this animal-free meat to the masses. So the scientist researcher Amit Geffen is uh, midway through an experiment that could end up in the recipe for the world's first lab-grown chicken breast. Um, he's a bioengineer and professor at Tel Aviv University, and he believes that lab-grown chicken could help satiate a growing global demand for meat at a time when livestock production is a major contributor to greenhouse gases, land degradation, water pollution, and biodiversity loss, which I'll address in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Projecting into the future when land and water and animal feed become less abundant, Geffen says resources for the animals would become so expensive that the end product, native meat, will be too expensive for most of the population to consume regularly, and it is our duty as researchers to prepare for such a future. Mm. So um, he's getting money from what's called the Modern Agriculture Foundation. It's a nonprofit Israeli organization with a lab-cultured meat agenda. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, The project was launched earlier this year, and his colleagues choose chicken in particular because it's a main popular main course in Israel and of course across the world. So he writes, it's a challenging to come up with the texture and consistency of the product that will resemble the muscle fiber structure of native chicken breasts. Mm. 
The process begins with a single chicken cell harvested from a living animal. He goes on to say that this isn't a vegan answer to chicken. <laughs> uh, since cells and collagen for the serum are harvested from animals, and then with stimulation, the muscle cell divides into millions. The cells are incubated in a serum made from collagen, and they're searching out non-animal alternatives as well. Mm-hmm. What that might entail, I have no idea. But they have a, a complex process that involves replicating the conditions in a chicken's body. The fibers end up in the form of uh, what the Modern Agriculture Foundation says is identical in every way to the type of, of meat course. consumed today. <laughs> that doesn't sound right for some reason. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So this isn't the first experiment with petri dish meat. If you guys remember back in 2013, they created an in vitro hamburger patty. <laughs> and... Um, you know, it, it costs like $325,000 to produce. That was an And they called it Schmeet, <laughs> which is kind of like Schmeet. Oh, yes. Um, and it was actually the cultured beef patty was bankrolled by uh, Google co-founder Sergey Brin. Uh, it deb- debuted with mixed reviews, and obviously the biggest challenges came with the cost of it being produced. Um, They said the cultured hamburger, if it were produced commercially, would sell for about $80 a pound. (laughs) So so when it comes to the market, we could say that it's a Shemita year. (laughs) (laughs) So in this Civil Eats article, you know, they, they go into this whole idea of why not just encourage people to eat less meat and, you know, this whole environmental degradation of meat and blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, I mean, it's just so shocking in so many ways. So one of the concerns came out um, about, you know, the fact that this is genetically created in a lab and people are going to be suspicious about it. (laughs) (laughs) And that um, it's pretty much the most processed food that you can get, right? So Mm. it's created in a lab, engineered meat, it's totally processed. And in the final um, kind of paragraph in in the article, it says, um, you know, if the initial reactions to the bland, dry, and pricey test tube burger are any indication, scientists will have to move a long way to go before they're able to produce commercially viable meat in a lab, um, until then, those who prefer their protein to be less energy and resource intensive might want to look towards plant-based meat <laughs> made from soy and pea protein and just extend those meatless Mondays into Wednesday and Tuesday and every other day. And so there's some commentary on the article about how, you know, going back to a show we had previously, um, of the whole idea of the vegetarian myth and how soy and pea protein are hardly less resource intensive than meat, you know, raising animals. And um, it's just, you know, agriculture is just a relentless assault against the planet. And for those who are interested, there's a link to the vegetarian myth 
food justice and sustainability, a great video of Lear Keith going more into that. So, yeah, um, and another comment on the article is uh, a couple of weeks ago, scientists are creating a genetically modified glow chicken. <laughs> I saw the <laughs> chickens that, that glow in the dark if they have oh bird glue, right? <laughs> so this whole idea of, you know, the fact that there's so much money being spent on things like genetically modified glow chickens and schmeat and test tube <laughs> chickens is just insanity. The world's gone completely mad. <laughs> so mad science. Yeah, check it out. And I don't, I, I have no desire. I'll eat rattlesnake before I go. <laughs> yeah. It tastes like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> It just brings to mind the whole uh, Soylent Green thing. I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie back in, I think it was in the Soylent 70s. Green is people. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but it's so, like, you know, it, it, it's just, they act like the current system of uh, factory farming is the only option and that we have to find an alternative to this. You know, it's it's so it's it's such a narrow view on things. You know, with you, when you've got people like Lear Keith and um uh Joel Salatin and all these people coming out and saying, No, there is an alternative if we go back to our traditional farming methods where we don't have massive operations with uh you know, all the, the cattle and chickens and everything in these battery cages and like just making the far, whole farming system into a uh, an unsustainable uh, factory environment, if you go back to kind of putting animals on pasture, um, you know, this this is a more viable solution than, than going into the lab and creating something, you know, some kind of Frankenstein meat for everybody to eat. It's just, it's so ridiculous. It's just in- complete insanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it also makes me think of like unpalatable part of the chicken. <laughs> They're kind of experimenting. At least he's a thigh. Yeah. <laughs> yes, seriously. <laughs> you know that might t- cost ten million dollars. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because then they'd actually have to do the bone too. Right? <laughs> I'm surprised they get the money for these. Oh, I'm not surprised yeah. at all. I'm not surprised at all. It's it's like you know by by maintaining this kind of illusion that we need that the the uh, factory farming is the only option to feed everybody, um, they, that kind of justifies them pumping all this money into research and stuff. Like you know it it doesn't it doesn't surprise me in the least. It's supposed to be a nonprofit organization, right? Yeah, right. Well, it was interesting in the article because they talk about how, you know, the percentage of people willing to switch to a plant-based diet remains low. And so the CEO at New Harvest, a nonprofit organization, has raised over $2 million to support scientists creating meat and dairy alternatives. Mm. (laughs) I'm just going to throw my money in the opposite direction. Yeah, seriously. Don't think I'll be eating schmitza oh. anytime soon. This is worse than idiocracy, really. I mean, I was just gonna say that, Gabby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. The whole alternative no, thing. That, that makes me wonder too. It's something I've thought about for a while. Is that like um, when you look, like if I go to our local food co-op, 
you know, and, and uh, it's largely kind of more vegetarian, vegan oriented. They do have some meat there, but it's not necessarily like a meat section, you know. Um, mm. But, you know, there's all like there's the fake burgers, the fake uh, sliced turkey, fake sausage, <laughs> fake cheese. Um, and it just makes me wonder, like, uh, I don't know how to phrase this, like vegans and vegetarians what the are hell? looking for. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're looking for something that resembles that. I mean, if you were really, like, getting yourself away from eating meat, why would you try to eat a meat alternative? Like, wouldn't you just be satisfied, you know, with the vegetables and the other things? Like, why do you have to make a bean burger? Is it because of the convenience of, like, the format of the food? Or is it because people are actually jonesing for meat that we're supposed to be eating, you know? And and it's like this uh, disconnect um, between... You know, it's like, yes, we still have a desire for turkey and sausage, um, but, you know, we're not going to admit that. We're just going to make fake turkey and sausage. And, yeah. I don't know. I think oh, it's a vegan so diet is inherently that. unsatisfying, you know? Yeah. It's like yeah. it, it is, yeah. their body is still craving these animal proteins and animal fats and that sort of thing. So they're, they're trying desperately to kind of um, substitute that um, probably quite unsuccessfully. Oh, yeah, it's awful. I can testify. I mean, I think, Erica, too, you had done the vegetarian thing for a while. I, I did it for close to a year, and I just felt like crap the whole time. It was mm. awful. Yeah, the tofu turkey, it's like shit, like a plump. Yeah. That's kind of what this uh, article reminded me of. Like, you, you open your can of uh, genetically created chicken, and it's like in this <laughs> weird blob. <laughs> <laughs> You're like cat food. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. All right. Well, let's uh, let's see. Let's move on to our next thing here. Um, Gabby, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Lyme disease? Are you going to cover that? Oh yeah, it was an article published, I think, already a couple of weeks ago or one week about chronic Lyme disease. A silent, a silent epidemic the government chooses to ignore. And he goes through Lyme disease in general and explains how it can be taken for chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, but also multiple sclerosis, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, autism, Crohn's disease, attention deficit disorder, Lou Gehrig's disease, colitis, thyroid disease, chronic inflammation, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, food sensitivity, insomnia, depression, and a host of other psychological disorders. And I mention each specific disease because in the article, it is uh, one of the top experts of Lyme disease in the United States. He says that he has never had a single patient um, with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis who tested negative for Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the the agent that causes uh, Lyme disease. And um, it discusses also, I found it very interesting that it is related with climate change, that we're seeing more and more of this disease, you know, not only in the United States, but all through the, um, throughout the whole world. And uh, the other interesting thing is that traditionally Lyme disease is thought to be um, caused by a tick bite. And um, 
but apparently new research are implicating you know other biting insects such as spiders, fleas, mites, mosquitoes, and uh, it is also known that Lyme disease can be spread through body fluids. At least you know pregnancy, you know, a child can be born with Lyme disease or with problems from a from a mother with Lyme disease. And, uh, and yes, it's um, not a pretty picture. Um, the problem is that there is a debate nowadays, like there is the CDC of the United States and they are basing their guidelines um, from, the, from, an organiz uh, from an organization um, of experts. Uh, they published their guidelines in 2006. And they claim that there is no such a thing as an epidemic of Lyme disease and that treatment for one month is more than enough. And on the other hand, there are other experts that uh, are seeing that this is not the case, that you need months of treatment. And um, that if you have a negative blood test for, for these bugs, it doesn't mean that you are not afflicted because the blood tests are very insensitive. They're not sensitive. And uh, the article explains how the guys uh, against the Lyme disease debate, the experts that published the guidelines, uh, they all had conflicts of interest, as always, you know. Um, they are uh, sponsored by, by either technologies for Lyme, for Lyme tests or Big Pharma and so forth. And I noticed, um, Erica told me that there was somebody who commented the article, you know, pretty much um, arguing in favor of the current guidelines in place that, you know, that deny Lyme disease as an epidemic. And having, you know, researched um, Richard Horowitz's uh, book, you know, Why Can't I Get Better? Richard Horowitz is a Lyme disease expert. He's a, a specialist in internal medicine, and throughout his whole life, he has only seen mostly Lyme disease patients. And he uses specific blood cultures like PCR, polymers, chain reaction to detect the DNA of certain bugs. And he has detected these bugs even though um, patients uh, had the traditional treatment and his patients were very sick, you know, like they went to up to 30 doctors before consulting to him. And um, he treated them for months, sometimes even years, with antimicrobial supplements, but also herbal protocols. And they healed, and the PCR test came back negative. So his research, he has seen thousands of patients, speaks of, you know, it's evidence, you know, uh, the current guidelines being misplaced, you know. So I think overall, um, yes, we have a problem, a huge problem, and it could be worse than we can imagine if, if, it's, if it is true that, you know, these bugs can be transmitted through mites, you know, spider bites and so forth. And... Um, and yeah, it is something to have in mind. There is a documentary also mentioned in the article, which is called "Under Our Skin." I thought the tra I haven't seen it, but I saw the trailer. I thought it was pretty good, you know. 
Uh, people can be very, very sick, and if they heal when they are treated, even though treatment could be months, then this is something we really want to know about because this mm-hmm. is like uh, considerably, you know, considered terminal, like, you know, irreversible, like multiple sclerosis. They can have treatment, you know, people can recover. So we really want to know about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I read that comment article. that... I read the comment yeah. that the guy that the guy left on the the article, and he he was basically just arguing for what um, kind of official science has recognized, and that he he was complaining that uh, some of the claims made in the article were, um, uh, you know, not um, in in line with what official um, science has kind of recognized. Um, yeah. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, I think you really need to look at. Uh, you, you know, you've got this panel that's kind of uh, come up with what they have recognized, you know, and they will completely ignore all the, um, you know, the, the, the researchers in the field, like the people who are actually treating people. You know, that's that's kind of where the, the cutting edge evidence is actually coming from. And all that kind of stuff really has to be taken into account, but it's not. And, you know, all, the, all these complaints, like he was saying, you know, science has never shown that lines can be passed um, in any way other than from a tick bite. Um, okay, fine. But, uh, you know, when you have all this uh, anecdotal evidence of people who have never been bitten by ticks and are, are coming down with it or entire families who who have, um, you know, Lyme's issues um, when, you know, obviously not all of them were bitten by ticks, it's, you know, you, you have to take these kinds of things into account. You can't just uh, ignore that because science hasn't bothered to recognize this yet, or you know, science, science is, might be behind on these things. There is also like a huge bias by health insurance companies, and it mm. is complete incompetence. It's completely idiotic because they don't want to cover treatment for eight months. You know, specific treatment, mm. antibiotics or whatever is needed, and they prefer to cover only one month. But they mm. want to have in mind that, you know, people that are so sick, you know, they're going to be, at the end, for them, more expensive if it comes to it. You know, they're so psychopathic in thinking, um, you know, mm. thinking only about profits and, you know, and like, you know, and people are as guinea or something, you know. But even then, it's completely idiotic because if you give treatment for eight months, one year, you know, in the long term, that will be much better than cost, you know, cost of people irreversibly ill, you know. So so mm. that's one thing, you know. The current guidelines are very biased um, in favor for what health insurance companies uh, prefer. And um, Richard Horowitz is part of the expert panel who published the other guidelines, guidelines saying that, no, actually, you know, longer treatment is needed. Um, mm. Current tests are not specific and sensitive, and so based in pretty solid science, you know. Mm. And um, they're having a more word of it because you know people are interested, and also they're having results. You know, the results speak of themselves. You know, just like mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite person, you know, Archie Archivist Jashik says, "Results, you know, results is what counts." <laughs> and mm-hmm. people have good results, you know, in treating these diseases properly with, you know. Uh, long-term treatment, they have good results. You know, they recover their lives back. So, so mm-hmm. yes, this is uh, something that we should definitely keep an eye on. And 
and not be biased against, you know, against these people. Yeah. Well, I think the, yeah. the health insurance cover, companies will basically, you know, they cover what they have to. You know, if it, if it isn't something that's that's been recognized and kind of is fully, um, you know, uh, recognized in, in mainstream medicine, then they won't cover it. You know, it's like they, they it, it's almost like, They'll they'll cover what they have to cover because well okay this has been recognized so fine we will cover this as opposed to something that's a little bit less mainstream they just take a look at, no we're not going to cover that forget it that's that's uh, that's internet voodoo stuff that's not uh, that's not something that uh, that we're responsible for it's it, it is completely psychopathic. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. well. Fascinating. I mean, it's definitely something that um, deserves to be looked into a lot more. Mm. Well, let's see. Let's uh, let's kind of dive into our topic for today. Um, we're going to be talking about some food myths, um, and as we've the, we've kind of touched on this uh, general topic in the past, uh, and some of the things that we're talking about, definitely the the high-fat versus the low-fat diet and cholesterol and things like that, but we're just going to kind of go over this again. Um, it makes me think of something that we talked about, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, when we were talking about alternative medicine in uh, the idea that, uh, you know, we're we're not trying to promote a black-and-white agenda here on this show. We're not saying, like, you should be, you know, you should stay at home and try to treat yourself for every single thing that happens. There are some cases where you need a doctor, you need an expert. Um, mm-hmm. So essentially trying to route out kind of the, the black and white thinking and, and uh, uh, help people to take each situation in its own context. And that's kind of where we're, the angle that we're coming from with the the, the idea of the food myths uh, as well. Um, because uh, I think as everyone has seen, you know, something blows up on online, especially because the majority of people now, um, especially like in, you know, I guess in developed countries are spending their time on the Internet. And so all your information comes from the Internet. And so mm-hmm. if you read, uh, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have had this experience, if you read health blogs and stuff, you'll see a topic, maybe read one article uh, and then be like, oh, okay, so X is bad, you know, or Y is good. Um, and then just kind of run with that. Um but a lot of it takes a little bit of further uh, research. Mm-hmm. So um, with that in mind, uh, I want to start with a little bit of inf- information about nitrates and nitrites. Um, this is something that kind of plagued me for a while uh, in my my own kind of diet history. Um, at first, uh, I went like uh, gluten-free. Um, and then actually after going gluten-free, I did the vegetarian thing for a little while, felt awful, um, and then kind of came across this information about like the paleo diet and then the ketogenic diet and have been learning more about that. Um, but when I first kind of got back into um, eating meat on a regular basis, um, you know, animal fats and proteins, um, I was really afraid of nitrites because I had just seen a lot of information that said that they were bad. And so I would be really careful to pick out, like, uncured bacon or uncured hot dogs and not eat anything that had nitrates in it. Um, And having discovered some further information on this, I thought it was really interesting. Um, 
that they are not as bad as we thought they were. Uh, there was a study mm-hmm. that came out in the uh, the 70s that linked uh, nitrites to uh, cancer, and that has since been uh, disproven um, for a couple of reasons, uh, partially because at that time that the study was done, uh, the knowledge didn't exist that the majority of nitrates in your system are actually in your saliva. Um, mm-hmm. And so you actually have more um, nitrates in your saliva uh, than you than you could ever get from eating, you know, hot dogs or bacon or cured meat or anything like that. Um, the other thing was that they fed, and it was actually nitrites, sorry, they, uh, they fed high, high levels of nitrites to mice and to rats. Um, and nitrites are, in certain amounts, can be toxic. I mean, if you ate, a like, a teaspoon of pure nitrite, um, you would mm-hmm. die from that. Um, but that's such an overblown example because the same thing is true for, you know, acetaminophen or a lot of other compounds, even, uh, quote-unquote, natural stuff like oregano oil or iodine. If you take too much of it, it'll be really harmful. Um so that just kind of needs to be taken with a grain of salt, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> but <clears throat> just real quickly, the difference here, <clears throat> the difference is basically one oxygen atom. Uh, nitrate is NO3. Um, it is, uh, sorry, I had a little hiccup there in my phone line. Um, so nitrate is uh, one nitrogen, three oxygen, and nitrite it's one nitrogen and two oxygens, so it's NO2. Um, so that's the only difference between nitrate and nitrite. And uh, what happens is when you uh, when you take in nitrates, uh, they are converted um, to nitrites in your saliva um, and in your gut as well. So uh, that's where the conversion process comes in. And in cured meats, uh, what happens is uh, nitrates are used in the curing salt. Uh, that you use to cure meats with, and they are converted in that process to nitric oxide, which binds to iron and lends that kind of uh, pink color to cured meats that uh, everybody is familiar with. So that's just kind mm-hmm. of like the process that happens. Um, but let me see here. I'm looking at my my notes. Um, so vegetables are the, actually the primary source of nitrites. 93% of nitrates uh, come from vegetables. Um, this is kind of interesting that one serving of arugula, two servings of butter lettuce, and four servings of celery or beets have more nitrate in them than 467 hot dogs. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> so that's pretty intense. Uh, and your own saliva actually has more nitrates than all of them. Um so that's you know if people are freaking out about nitrates they want they're going to want to stop swallowing I guess. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, and there actually is some interesting uh, information uh, that suggests that nitrates are actually beneficial beneficial for immune and cardiovascular function. Um, they're being studied as a potential treatment for hypertension, heart attacks, sickle cell, and circulatory disorders. Um, there was an article in USA Today a hot dog preservative could be a disease cure. Um, that was pretty interesting. Um, so with some other ones here, uh, preventing brain damage following a stroke, uh, preventing preeclampsia in pregnant women, uh, promoting healing of wounds, 
promoting successful organ transplantation are just some of the beneficial effects um, that have been found about nitrates. Um, so it's also important uh, to realize that when you ingest uh, nitrates uh, or nitrates, when they're accumulated in the body, uh, ingested nitrate from food is converted into nitrate when it contacts the saliva, and 25% is converted into salivary nitrate, 20% converted into uh, nit of the nitrates converted into nitrite itself, uh, and the rest is excreted in the urine with five hours of ingestion. Um, any nitrate that you absorb into your body has a very short half-life. Uh, it disappears in about five minutes um, from your blood. Mm -hmm. So um, it also forms, uh, when it reacts with your stomach acid, forms nitric oxide, and that is what may have some of the beneficial effects uh, in, in the body system. Um, so all in all, I thought that was pretty interesting. And the, the other aspect of this is that kind of rapidly hunting down nitrate-free uh, meats, like, you know, uncured hot dogs or uncured bacon. When they say that and you look, it's kind of like when they say no MSG added and there's already MSG in something, but they just didn't add any. But a lot of these mm -hmm. packages, when you look at them, they'll say no nitrates added. Um, and what that means is that they used, uh, most commonly they use celery salt to cure mm -hmm. the bacon or the sausage or the hot dogs or whatever. And that actually contains... 10 times more nitrates than the regular cured meat does. So that, I think that's the great irony of the whole situation is that you're trying to hunt down nitrate-free food, you get uncured hot dogs, and then you get 10 times more nitrates in the uh, in the product itself. Um, that is so typical. Because... <laughs> busted. <laughs> yeah, busted. <laughs> yeah. So the... Uh, the, the interesting part about that is, and part of the reason for it, and people, some of our listeners may have, you know, gotten into curing their own meat or whatever, but when you use, um, there's these uh, two, there's saltpeter, uh, which is uh, a commonly used curing salt, and then there's um, preg, it's called preg powder, number one and number two. And essentially, um, the difference between one and two is that one is kind of a short-acting um uh, curing solution and two is kind of a longer acting solution. So say if you're doing like pancetta and you want to do a dry cure and you don't want to cook it, when you eat the end product, you want it to still essentially be raw and simply cured. For that, you would use the number two powder because it's a longer lasting and it has more of an effect. It has slightly more um, nitrate in the solution. Um, but preg powder number one, is used for shorter curing times where you are going to then cook the meat at the end, something like corned beef, uh, or if you're making a pancetta, but then you're going to boil it or bake it. Um, so <clears throat> there's a lot of interesting information on that, and I won't go into all of it right now because it's like there's a whole world about charcuterie mm. and curing meats, and there's a whole science around it. Um, but essentially the, uh, the curing salt that you use for that, um, those were also something I stayed away from because I'd been wanting to play with curing my own meat. I was like, oh, nitrites, you know, they're bad. I don't want to do that. Well, the, the solution, the, the nitrites in the curing salt is an extremely, extremely low percentage. Um, in fact, the USDA only allows 120 parts per million uh, in, those, in those solutions. So it's essentially like a very, very tiny, tiny amount of nitrate. The rest is salt. And then they color it pink so that you can tell the difference between that and regular salt. That's the only reason for the 
the pink salt doesn't actually turn the meat pink. It's the conversion to nitric oxide that does that process. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, and the, the main point of this is to kill uh, botulism when you're curing meats. Um, so, like, you get a pork belly, there there is already botulism uh, uh, or the um, bacteria that cause that on the surface of the meat. Uh, and basically, all they need to grow is an anaerobic environment, you know, and some warm temperatures. So the way when you do pancetta and you roll up the pork belly and then tie it up, if you were to do that without uh, curing salts, you need to be very careful because then you're allowing an environment in the folds of where you rolled it up for botulism to, to grow. Um, so the reason for using those curing salts is to uh, to kill those harmful bacteria and essentially make it safe to eat. Um, and that's the whole reason that salt was originally used to preserve meats um, was to kill the bacteria and uh, keep it safe mm-hmm. without refrigeration. So mm. that's my that's my soapbox on nitrites. So there, yeah. I mean, you, you can spend some time looking it up yourself for sure. Um, I would Google that. You'll find a lot of contradictory information. There's a lot of quote-unquote health blogs that are still saying, you know, nitrites are bad. You need to stay away from them. Um, but I, I think the research proves out that uh, that they're not and that you can, you know, you can essentially go hog wild. Again, no pun intended. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, that in the emergency room, if you're having a person with a heart attack, the first thing you do is you put nitrates underneath their tongue and mm. their symptoms get relieved. Yes, it was a heart attack. <laughs> I was just saying, mm. <laughs> one of those nieces that I never recalculated. So why does it treat heart attack and it's bad for food? <laughs> Yeah. Well, just like an indication of how much of a disconnect there actually is, I noticed um, a couple of years ago, a lot of supplements started coming on the market that were um, nitrates or um, encouraged, uh, you know, were like precursors to uh, um, to nitrous oc- nitric oxide or something like that. And I, was, I kind of was like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't really make any sense. Like, you know, on the one hand, you've got people out there who are, uh, you know, like Jonathan said, kind of diligently hunting down uh, nitrates in their food and trying to find all these uh, nitrate-free products. But then, on the other hand, you've got people who are supplementing with this stuff to kind of uh, particularly to treat, like, high blood pressure and all these other kinds of things. And I'm like, what, what, is, what is going on here? There's obviously some kind of major disconnect. And that's when I started yeah. kind of looking more into the, the nitrate thing and, and found a lot of the stuff that, uh, that uh, Jonathan's reported on here. So it, it just it, it it just goes to show that that you know there there is this this huge disconnect, um, and these myths kind of end up getting circulated, and they're not necessarily based on any kind of hard science. You know, this is something that uh, a study that was done in the 70s and has been uh, debunked since then. So it's really uh, yeah, it's just another indication of our crazy environment. Yeah. No, I, I guess I should point out that, like, if you're trying to find healthy bacon, um, a lot of bacon does have sugar in it, too. And so you want to mm. keep an eye out for that. <clears throat> so this is not to say that you should just go pick up whatever from the store, you know, and then just start munching it down. Like, still read your ingredients list. Look at what you're buying. Um, you know, if the ingredients list is really long, put it back and try to find something else. Yeah. Um, but, you know, specifically, yeah. Uh, specifically in regards to uh, to nitrates and nitrites, um, 
uh, you know, essentially, well, first of all, you don't need to worry about it. You have, you know, so much more of that in your own body than you could ever get from the food that you're eating unless you want to get down almost 500 hot dogs. Um, but, you know, second of all, if you uh, if you are worried about that, um, the the stuff that says no nitrates added actually has more in it. And so that's just something to be aware of. You know, if you're, you know, if you're still trying to avoid it, you're actually better off just eating regular bacon. Yeah. Yeah. So, thought that was pretty interesting. Um, so, I guess the, let's uh, let's talk about uh, calories next. The people are mm. freaking out about calories and counting calories, and there's there's all these little calorie meters. Um, in fact, I even saw at a, a Starbucks a couple weeks ago on the menu they showed they had little calorie count next to everything that was on the uh, on the menu. So. It's become a really pervasive thing. Are you, Doug, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess uh, this kind of happened um, probably like in the 70s or 80s or something like that. The, the concept being that, you know, calories are energy. And if you take in more calories than you burn, then uh, your body will store those calories as fat. Um, therefore, in our reductionist, simplistic thinking about things, uh, it was decided that what you want to do is try and get a, if you want to lose weight, have a calorie deficit. So actually be burning off more calories than you're actually taking in. Um, you know, people like this kind of thing because, like I say, it's reductionist, it's simple. You can kind of work something into a, a very simple mathematical formula, um, kind of count the calories that you're eating, um, and make sure that they're lower than the amount that you're burning on a daily basis. But unfortunately, it as with most things in life, is a lot more complicated than that. Um, yeah, it's, it's even hard to know where to begin with all this kind of stuff because the, it, it is the idea that you can be in complete control of your calorie consumption and burning is completely ridiculous. Like there really is so many different things that go into what you are actually uh, consuming as far as calories are concerned and what you're actually burning. You know, this is when kind of um, aerobic exercise started to become really popular because people were kind of like, oh, i got to burn more calories, got to burn more calories. Um, but it really uh, it isn't that simple because your body, if you're not taking in enough calories and you're in a calorie deficit, your body actually slows down um, how many calories it's burning. Um, most of the calories that you burn are actually uh, taken up by when you're just kind of sitting around doing nothing. Um, you know, your resting metabolic rate, as it's called. So the kind of the amount of uh, calories that you burn just by your regular body processes, um, creating heat in your body, all the fidgeting that you do, all every, every involuntary movement, all those things um, account for more calories burned than when you actually hit the treadmill. Um, so if you start to lower... The amount of calories you just that too. Sorry, can you say that again, Tess? Even the amount of calories that you burn while you're ingest, digesting your food, yeah, that counts to your calorie expenditure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like everything that your body does, every second, 
is is uh, is accounted for in your calorie expenditure. So yeah, basically you 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 end up in this situation where people are reducing their calories and going on things like uh, Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers and diligently counting all their calories and lowering uh, how much they're eating and favoring foods that are lower calorie, you know, which automatically kind of uh, brings in um, the whole low fat paradigm because fat is more calorie dense than uh, sugar or protein. So you get all these fat-free uh, convenience foods and things like that that people are eating. Um, but, it, it, you know, what happens is your body just says, oh, I'm not getting enough calories. I better lower the amount of calories I'm burning um, on a on just a day-to-day basis. Um, so it really, uh, it, it's completely fallacious to think that you can be in control at this level. It just, it doesn't, it just doesn't work this way. But unfortunately what that does is it, it creates a paradigm where people start seeing calories as bad, which is ridiculous because calories are energy. That is what you need. Your body needs energy. So the idea that calories are somehow bad and you're looking at the calorie counts on all the packaged food that you're eating to try and keep it as minimal as possible is, is insane. You know, you need energy to be able to, to, to function um, on any level. And, you know, it, it just it, it creates this paradigm where you're just looking at the numbers. Um, so companies like Coca-Cola can say, oh, no, it's okay to drink Coke. It's only this many calories, you know. And, it, and it's like, well, you're not looking at any of the other ingredients and the things, the effects that they have on the body. You're only looking at these numbers and saying, well, you know, if I uh, have only a half portion at lunch, then I can have a Coke later in the day and everything is fine. Well, unfortunately, things do not work that way. You know, all the the negative effects that that Coke is going to have on you outside of the calories that you're consuming, which aren't a negative thing at all. That's another interesting, you know, thing which shows how disconnected people are because I, you know, mainstream doctors, they're really bad, you know, Mm. dietary advice and everything. And I mm. sometimes give talks about fructose, for example, and how bad it is, even though it has like zero calories, it can literally make you fat, diabetic, huh. and you know, so forth. And so I see them switching like to diet coke, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They else, like they think they don't have any fructose and I say, oh, come on, hello. <laughs> I mean, if diet coke works so well, you know, your obesity problem, you know, would have been solved decades ago. <laughs> There's yeah. no evidence which shows that you can really, you know, lose weight with drinking that, you know. So. Oh, man. Don't even get me started on diet. I can't COVID. even uh, wrap my head around what actually a calorie is. The definition is the amount of energy needed to raise a temperature of one gram of water by one degree Celsius. Uh, at a pressure of one atmosphere. I mean, what does that even mean? <laughs> what does that to what happens inside of your body? Is your body uh, a combustion chamber? I mean, it has all these components to it. So what exactly are they talking about when they talk about how a calorie is used inside of your body, not in a machine? Mm. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I demand an answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think any of us have actually have an answer for that. <laughs> yeah, so how come all these people on the keto diet, paleo diet, I can have done like 3,000 or more calories per day and still lost weight. Yeah. You know? And yeah. the standard, you know, dietary advice, oh, if you are obese, 
you should eat like nine. Uh, here it's a nine hundred calories diet for you per day, yeah. and I mean literally it doesn't work. You know? Yeah, it's really funny yeah. actually. Um, you know uh, the 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 common villain who we've talked about on the show a couple of times named Ansel Keys, who uh, is mm-hmm. one of the guys who promoted the uh, the low fat low cholesterol diet that has plagued our society for decades now. He actually did a study before he ever did that kind of thing where um, he was actually doing a starvation study uh, where he actually took uh, some people who were uh, conscientious objectors to the war um, and he uh, put them basically on a starvation diet. And it wasn't even that low in calories. I think it was like 1,500 calories or 1,000 calories or something like that. So, I mean, you compare that to like your average Weight Watchers person who's trying to get by on like a 900-calorie diet. Um, but the effects that he noticed were ridiculous. Like they were, they were so lethargic and they were tired all the time and they were constantly complaining that they were hungry. They would sit there and flip through recipe books as entertainment, you know, just fantasizing about this food. And like, you know, they would, they would eat their meal very slowly so they could savor every mouthful that they were getting. And, you know, their hair started falling out, their nails became brittle, like all these terrible effects that basically show that this is not... Uh, a good approach to uh, attempting weight loss or, or anything like that. And he was actually doing this study um, so that uh, they could have an idea of what they were going to encounter in the war when they started liberating different areas that had been cut off from food supplies for a long time. Like, what are these people, what kind of state are they actually going to be in? And, you know, it, the, the idea that, that this study could have been done and then we turn around and start promoting things like Weight Watchers, it's just, it, it's just mind-boggling. Again, a sign of the disconnect. That's out there. Well, I think, too, um, you know, this is something uh, I wanted to point out that this is not necessarily advocating gluttony, you know, mm-hmm. by by saying that the calories are not necessarily bad. Um, <laughs> we're not saying you should go out and just, to, like, to stuff yourself um, because there's still something to be said for moderation. And part of the ketogenic diet is caloric restriction, Um you know, intermittent fasting where you actually eat less over time. You're not eating a ton every day. Um, mm. But I think the the difference there is that, well, that um, you know, we're, we're saying you... That is fine. Can't stuff yourself. Sorry, Tiff, can you say that again? Oh, I think I'll we have a bad connection here. And what's in a so like... <laughs> Um, sorry to Technical difficulties. You're, you're cutting out pretty bad there. I wonder if you want to try try calling back in. Let's give that a shot. Um, so, I guess you're saying like you know, yeah, if you're um, if you're eating on a keto diet, you can eat like three thousand calories a day, and you can still lose weight. The key is what you're eating. You know, you're not eating mm-hmm. three thousand calories of like carbohydrates and sugars and stuff like that. The key is to restrict those and increase your animal fats um, overall. So I just wanted to, to clarify that because I could I could see certain people saying like, oh, calories are fine. Okay, so I'm just going to stuff my face with whatever I can find, which is not necessarily yeah. the approach that should be taken. No, not at all. And, and the, the good thing about it being on a ketogenic diet, when you're taking in um, fat and, uh, you know, a moderate amount of protein, it is inherently satiating. You know, it's not the same thing as being in a right. sugar-burning mode where your body is burning carbohydrates all the time. And, uh, you know, restricting in that state 
is extremely difficult. Like you're constantly hungry all the time looking for your next meal. You're preoccupied with food. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to being on a ketogenic diet when you're taking in your fat regularly, a lot of times it's really easy to intermittent fast because you just don't feel like eating. So it's, it's, you know, it has an advantage in that way um, just in the fact that uh, doing any kind of caloric restriction is a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. It kind of happens organically. I've noticed the same yeah. thing. Um, and, you know, at times in the past uh, where I have, uh, you know, fallen off the off the wagon or cheated on this diet, um, the hunger is incredible. It's incredible yeah. when you go from when you go from having more of a ketogenic lifestyle to then eating carbs for a short period of time. Uh, you really notice it. And you're like, why? You know, I feel like I'm starving. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then when you get back on doing, you know, high fat um, and uh, very very low carb and uh, no processed sugar at all. I mean, as little sugar as you can. Um, you know, there is some leeway I think for berries and things like that. Um, but uh, you know, you'll you'll notice that, um, like you said, you, you can go an entire day. I mean, there's a lot of times where I end up just eating one meal a day, um, and I feel mm-hmm. like, you know. Yeah. yeah. Me too. One meal per day. Are we on? I mean, you. Yeah, you're on. Oh yeah, we're yeah, you're on. Now. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Now. I was going to say what Jonathan just said. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's your what's your own experience with that Tiff? Have you had the same same experience? Oh yeah. Like if you fall out of ketosis you notice that you get hungry more and then mm-hmm. like when you're getting back into it it takes a while for your body to catch up, but the more fat that you eat, it's like virtually impossible to stuff yourself all day. If you're eating four tablespoons of lard with your breakfast. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, and it's 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 funny too because the whole calorie myth, like just the 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 paradigm that it brings, you know, it's it's the the whole idea is that people who um are overweight, you know, it's their fault. You know, everything, well it's because you've eaten too many calories. That's the problem where you haven't you haven't exercised enough. But it, this is such a myth because you see all the time these people who are are uh, skinny and eat massive quantities of stuff, much more than any uh, you know, a person who might be overweight. And you know they're and they're fine. Yet they can turn and with this accusatory kind of uh, tone and be like, well, you know, you eat too much and you don't exercise enough. Well, I mean, it's obviously more complicated than that. There's obviously something more going on here. Um, you know, and it has to do with body metabolism. It has to do with hormones. Um, and yeah, you know, it does have to do with diet. But you can't turn around and blame people for that because a lot of times they just don't have the right information out there. And, you know, when they want, they want to lose weight, so they do what the mainstream tells them they have to do. And that's basically starve themselves. And meanwhile, you know, there's a pizza shop every two stores and like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken on the corner of every block. It's like, you know, but they, they have to try and force themselves to ignore all that and, and try and stay on this, uh, this starvation diet. It's really, it's really a terrible situation. And there's even examples of people who eat really low calorie and exercise like crazy and they still gain weight. So it's yeah. definitely yeah. not about exercise or calories. It's like you said, and also metabolism yeah, and issue. Also, yeah, and also examples of the country, you know, people that are skinny and they eat thousands of calories and they don't put any weight. Yeah. <laughs> like in theory, mathematically, yeah. it should not make it sense, but it happens. 
Yeah. And the other thing is too that when you're you're um, restricting your calories, even when you do see weight loss, a lot of the times that's not fat being burned. That's actually your body catabolizing its own muscle um, to to release proteins and right. burn that as fuel. Because uh, you know when you do restrict your calories, your body goes into this mode where it tries to to um, save as much body fat as it can because it thinks that it's in um, uh, a, a starvation situation. It thinks that, you know, there's not enough food around. Like, because that's the only logical reason that a person wouldn't be eating. It doesn't make any sense to your body that you would purposely be restricting your calories. So it's like, geez, I better hold on to as much fat as I can because we might be in a situation where there's food scarcity. So you don't actually burn fat. And, you know, people are standing on their scales and going, oh, look, I've lost five pounds since I started this diet. And it's like, yeah, well, how much of that is actual uh, fat loss? And, you know, are yeah. you still as strong as you were? You know, are you yeah. exhausted all the time? Yeah. And then you can do like a 600-calorie diet. And if all the foods mm. that you choose to eat, they are inflammatory, you can actually put on weight because inflammation, you know, is related with obesity, you know, fat mm. retention, water retention, I mean. So there you go, you know. Yeah. It's more inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the uh, <clears throat> the stress, too. You know, uh, I've, I noticed that in my own experience that being on a, a low calorie or like primarily, you know, vegetable or carbohydrate diet, I was always constantly stressed about tempting foods. Like you said, Doug, where there's a pizza shop yeah. in every corner and you smell it and you're just like, oh, my God, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah. I noticed that being being on a high fat diet, um, it, it's much, much different. I don't stress about tempting foods. Um, it's not like they're never tempting. I mean, certainly, you know, pizza smells really good. <laughs> but um, at the same time, I don't have that level of Jones, you know, that that is that you have when you're when you're on like a, a really like a fasting kind of regimen. Um, so the the animal animal fat, the high fat diet, I think is really the way to go. But uh, on that note, let's let's delve into cholesterol a little bit. I know we've touched on this in past shows uh, quite a few times, but since we're on the topic of food myths, um, let's talk about cholesterol a little bit. Um, Doug, I know you're really familiar with uh, with Sally Fallon um, and and the work that she's done. Do you want to just, just touch on that briefly and, like, you know, the, the main kind of evidence about cholesterol and why that's – you don't really need to avoid it? Yeah, well, I mean, cholesterol – basically what happened is uh, – I'll, I'll try and give the shortest Reader's Digest version of this – but basically, there were studies done where they found, uh, you know, that the plaques that were uh, accumulating in um, the, the arteries of people who had atherosclerosis contained cholesterol. So that laid, led to the theory that cholesterol was actually causing these problems. Now, unfortunately, there was never any real evidence for this, but it gained traction due more to bureaucracy than anything else and politicking. And that led to people deciding that they were they should be trying to eat as little cholesterol as possible. Um, and then that would, um, you know, lower the cholesterol in the body and therefore you wouldn't be accumulating these plaques. Well, unfortunately, this doesn't work. Uh, maybe fortunately, actually, because it means you don't have to be restricting how much cal- uh, cholesterol that you eat. But what they've actually found since then is that your body will maintain a consistent amount of cholesterol that it needs uh, if you eat more cholesterol, it will produce less. If you eat less cholesterol, it will produce uh, more. Um, it's as simple as that. So, um, 
Sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> so anyway, this has led to basically a collective mania in uh, our society with people trying to limit the amount of cholesterol they're eating and taking all these supplements to try and lower their cholesterol. All the focus comes on uh, to the cholesterol. And anything that you can do to lower your numbers so when they do blood tests for cholesterol, they kind of, uh, oh, your cholesterol is too high. We better do some things to lower your cholesterol um, by taking, you know, different uh, medications like statin medications that will, you know, force your body to produce less cholesterol, therefore lowering your numbers. But because the focus is completely on the cholesterol, you know, they're basically ignoring whether or not this has a beneficial effect overall. Um, you have not seen a decrease in uh, cardiac events or any of the other things that uh, cholesterol is supposed to be uh, causing. Um, but nonetheless, the focus is entirely on the numbers. So as long as you keep your uh, cholesterol number low, your doctor's happy. Never mind that you might still be have uh, a million different risk factors for, for cardiac events. Um, so it, it, again, led to kind of this ridiculous paradigm where uh, people are trying to lower their cholesterol numbers altering their diet so it has less cholesterol in it, but not, you know, inherently making themselves any safer, any uh, any less likely to have these cardiac events. Yeah, and something tragic, something really, really, really tragic happens because when people decided to eat a low-fat diet, they chose to eat carbohydrates. And when your body yeah. makes cholesterol from carbohydrates, that's the most inflammatory cholesterol you can ever make. So heart attacks never went down. They all, you know, we had a huge spike, and all the fats that were made on the labs to substitute animal fats, they were mm -hmm. terribly. It turned out to be terribly toxic. So there you go. People who have even bypass surgery, who end up, you know, with heart attacks, they can all have normal cholesterol levels, low cholesterol and they still end up with cardiac events. Mm. So that turned really bad. Yeah. And it turns out that these things get demonized like egg yolks. Like, come on. Eggs are amazing. They're so nutritionally dense. But uh, everybody's trying, you know, ordering their egg white omelet because they don't want to take in any, uh, any cholesterol. Or, you know, red meat gets demonized. You know, red meat is this, this terrible thing because it contains more cholesterol than your, your you know, chicken breasts or something like that. So, and, and pork, too, gets demonized. And it's all these incredibly nutrient-dense foods that, would, that are, are a proper part of any human diet. Um, and, and, and people are, are avoiding them. It's pretty sad because if you were born sometime after 1950, uh, 1960, especially the 70s, 80s, so you were born in the low-fat era, you know, so you were having cereals for breakfast and cookies mm -hmm. and who knows what. And so when people learn about how bad sugar is and how bad a high-carb diet is, is what am I going to have for breakfast then? And they try to yeah. come up with solutions. And they only come up with carbs. And I just laugh like, yeah. okay, so what did your grandparents eat? <laughs> like, imagine yeah, you were exactly. born in 1910, what they were eating. Mm -hmm. The eggs and bacon, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. yes, like so yeah. eat any eggs? Yes. <laughs> <You can laughs> yeah. Eat eggs. <laughs> Please eat eggs. Yeah, I think that's single-handedly responsible for the rise of smoothies and smoothie culture. 
You know, yeah. And, yeah, who could think of something less appetizing than blending a bunch of vegetables and stuff and nut milks and all these other kinds of things? Like, talk about, you know, our ancestors never ate anything even closely resembling this. And yet this, this is the, the, the answer. Have a smoothie for breakfast. Put some isolated protein powder in with, like, a few veggies and maybe a fruit. And, and, and this is supposed to be a breakfast? Come on. I used to eat smoothies for breakfast, and all it did was just make me go to the toilet like a maniac like an hour later. Yeah. <laughs> or and all these details. Yeah. I guess Eric, if you were going to say. Yeah. All these green. Sorry, can you say that again, Gabby? No, I was going to ask Erica what she's going to say. Oh, the, all the green drinks now, the, the kale, the juice, raw green drinks that everyone is drinking now it seems to be so popular. Now smoothies have kind of fallen out of favor and uh, your raw vegetable juice in the morning. Yeah. You read Would my you mind. That's, what, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like all these detox cocktails that are so fashionable, they're just like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially just sugar, right? You're taking all those vegetables and, and stuff like that, and you're juicing them. So you're taking out all the fiber. Well, what are you left with? Yeah, there's probably a good concentrated nutrition there, the nutrition from the plants, but also all those sugars are still there. That's the reason it still tastes somewhat palatable, although that could probably be argued. And the antinutrients are then too in juicing. Yeah. I think um, genetics has a lot, you know, a, a big role to play in this as well. It's making me think of a story from uh, Dr. Tent, uh, who we've talked about off and on in the past, where he had a patient come in who was just diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And he was like, you know, but I'm in perfect health, you know, and I, I run all the time and I eat a lot of fruit and vegetables. And he, he said he was kind of exasperated and was like, dude, you have, uh, Northern European ancestry, you're not supposed to eat that much fruit, you know, like you, yeah, you mm. can have an apple once in a while, but you know, your genetics prohibit this amount of sugar that you're taking in, which is what promoted the growth of the cancer. Um, mm. And the guy, the guy also said that he had never smoked a day in his life, you know, and he's like, well, this is diet and, and genetics related. Um, so mm. I think that there, there is some evidence um, that people, you know, from like Pacific Island cultures and things like that, can handle um, more sugars from fruit and stuff like that. But, you know, you really need to be uh, careful about, you know, looking into where you come from, what your body is made for, and what is healthy and what is not. Um, and even in those cultures where they do eat fruit on a regular basis, they also eat a lot of, uh, you know, animal fats, a lot of pork um, and things like that. So, um, and. Yeah. They also people forget or people don't know that, you know, fruits nowadays, they're unlike anything that existed in the past. I remember mm, when yeah. I went to England as a tourist, I went to a garden, you know, with like a chest collection of ancient fruits from the 15th century, 16th mm. century, you know, an apple back then, it doesn't look like anything like we have today, you know, it was acidic, mm. it was small, it was not sugary at all, you know, it's like. And those yeah. were apples, you know. You have to think about season, too. I mean, how many days of the year were those apples around? Or any of the the different fruits and stuff? You know, these people are, you know, we live in a world now where you have, uh, you know, 365 days a year you can get bananas. 
It's like, well, when when would those bananas actually be available? You know, these aren't things that people would be binging on um, throughout the entire year. They would come into season at a certain time, you'd eat them, and then, you know, then you wouldn't have access to them every single day. So all these things need to be taken into consideration. You know, that's why generally you might be able to get away with eating a little bit more carbs during the summertime when the light cycles are long versus in the winter because, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not going to be peaches grown in the winter time if you're in a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Out of the snow. Yeah. Oh, we've got a comment in the chat room now. Um, Nick Angeline has said, what if your smoothie is water, raw eggs, lard, Great Lakes gelatin, and maybe dandy blend? Not that our ancestors were vying for which personal blender is best, ninja or bullet? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm, I wasn't saying that you can't, you know, make a, make a, a healthy smoothie. I guess especially if um, you you are using kind of more paleo ingredients. Um, and you know, it, we live in a modern world, so sometimes you have to do uh, you know things for convenience. But uh, but yeah, it's more more the, the the rise of the smoothie culture that I was uh, I was talking about. I mean, you know, bulletproof coffee isn't exactly something our ancestors would have done either, but. Uh, but yeah. you know, it's it you come up with modern solutions. And most smoothies have a basis, like you were saying, uh, Doug, of banana. So it's a yeah. sweet we tend to think of a smoothie as a sweet kind of sugar rush more than mm-hmm. direct, as opposed to uh what the chatter was saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we would encourage I mean, I think a lot of our listeners are uh, familiar with this anyway, but if you're not, um, we'd encourage you to, you know, just do some searching on it. Look into the high fat diet. Um, look up the uh, the Weston A. Price Foundation and uh, some Sally uh, Sally Fallon material. Uh, Nourishing Traditions is mm-hmm. a really good book um, mm-hmm. that's full of really useful information. So, um, so let's see. Let's uh, let's touch on fiber uh, for a little bit. Um, this kind of makes me think of like when when I was a kid uh, and watching TV, and for whatever reason, it stands out in my memory that there were always commercials on for fiber, for like Metamucil mm-hmm. or whatever. Like you need to get your fiber, and I always heard that phrase, you know, from people. Well, you need your fiber to make you regular. Um, but uh, I guess uh, Tiff, Tiff and Erica, do you guys want to talk about that a little bit and just like, you know, why you know fiber is not not necessarily good for your gut, and it's not something that people should be uh, binging on. Yeah, I actually tried fiber once, and it was decidedly not good for my gut, and it was (laughs) that I needed to take Metamucil to know that it did not work. (laughs) But people or doctors usually recommend uh, Metamucil because allegedly bulky Stools will move faster through your colon. Uh, but the thing that they don't take into account is that bulky stools can cause straining um, mm. and lead to hemorrhoids. And if you have hemorrhoids, that makes your anal canal even more narrow and you don't completely empty out your bowels. So that just makes your constipated, constipation worse. Um and if you're constipated and you're retaining stools, the stools can become impacted. Um, these impacted stools and the straining can cause diverticular disease. 
which is like uh, like if you have diverticulosis, you have these pouches in your large intestine that kind of like bulge out and they collect debris and then you get like infections in there and it's really painful and a bad, bad disease to have, even though most of the time it seems acute, but it can become a chronic thing. Um, and I've had to it, uh, disimpact people before as a nurse in the hospital. <laughs> Yeah, me too. <laughs> the most common problem generally. Yeah, it's mm. off quiet. It's I had disimpacted some lady once and it was just like bricks coming out of her. Uh. And I can't imagine the relief that she had. She couldn't talk, but you could just see the relief on her face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also the large intestine it can hold like five to ten pounds of impacted and that can lead to something like a megacolon where your colon becomes so stretched out you lose all tone. So that's why a lot of people, when they switch from a high-fiber, high-carb diet and they switch to like a paleo or ketogenic diet, they might have a hard time with constipation and sluggish stools at first because their colon is so used to that stretchiness and they don't have Mm -hmm. that anymore and they've kind of lost some of their tone. So it might take them a while to actually get that tone back, or sometimes they might not get it back depending on how old they are, and they might have to you know, take some fiber every now and then just to, you know, do what they were used to doing before because it does work for some people for short mm. short amount of time, but over the long term it's really, really bad for you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I doing they- no, I was going to say my my fiber experience, you know, like Tiffany. I made a column cleanse, and it was based in with a very rich in fiber. I swear, you know, I had colitis like three months after that. You know, it was the worst wow. column cleanse ever. Jeez. It was just crazy. I and think it also reminds me. No, sorry, ahead. no. Know that when you prepare for a colonoscopy, when you're going to see through a camera in your colon, you typically mm. have to make a fiber-free diet because fiber, you know, leaves residues and irritates the colon. So right mm. there you have, like, the explanation of why, you know, a diet low in fiber is actually better for your bowels, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my patients to get a colonoscopy once and we we're going through that class where they tell you don't eat fiber. They had a big picture of vegetables with a cir- in a circle with a line through it, like don't eat these foods. <laughs> these doctors, they know that fibrous foods and a lot of carbohydrates are not good for you. They tell you not to do that to uh, prepare your bowel for the colonoscopy, but they kind of don't tell you to eat that way all the time. I just don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, disconnect. We have a show today of disconnection. <laughs> yeah, it does seem that way. Well, for our, our listeners who may be interested, there's actually a great article on the Scott page called Dietary Fiber, the Bulls in the China Shop. <laughs> and, uh, reading through it, it was really interesting that there's actually two types of fiber, insoluble fiber and then soluble fiber. And I didn't know this, but insoluble fiber is like fiber you get from all this. And then soluble fiber is basically what the author says, a killer food, literally, far more harmful than cellular fiber because it's so 
insidiously stealthy. And he goes into this whole thing about artificial stabilizers and volumizers and fillers in food, uh, processed mm. foods in particular. And we did a whole show on that. But um, they're basically expertly concealed. And so people don't maybe even know that they're eating this soluble birth fiber. So some obscure names are like agar agar or algamate, carrageen, gargum. And he basically said that this soluble fiber is accomplished by slowing down intestinal absorption of water and gases produced during digestion and also slowing down essential nutrients from foods, including proteins, fats, vitamins, and minerals. The malabsorption property behind soluble fiber is causes, like Tiffany was talking about, inflammatory issues, also diarrhea, uh, bloating, cramping, flatulence, and malnutrition is a side effect. Um, it's especially incendiary for young children, and um, because their their intestines are so tiny, they need only minute amounts of fiber to induce inflammatory reactions and diarrhea. And um, natu natural soluble fiber comes, you know, from juices and purees and fruits and vegetables, and it's just as harmful for toddlers. And what I found really interesting was that diarrhea remains one of the most common pediatric illnesses. So mm. it's certain that fiber is, um, you know, behind this issue. And like you were saying, Jonathan, when you were a kid and you see all this, you know, you got to feed fiber to your kids. They have to have fruits and vegetables. It seems like the study in this article is showing exactly the opposite. Yeah. I remember, yep. too, there was uh, commercials uh, when I was a kid for um, Cheerios, and they were promoting the fact that there was oat, br oat bran in there, which is a fiber, and talking about how it actually uh, lowers your cholesterol. So it ties in with the whole cholesterol myth, too. And, I mean, you know, it, it does do that because by uh, taking in this fiber, it actually binds to uh, the cholesterol so your body can't reabsorb it. Uh, usually your body will uh, reabsorb any, um, well, at least some of the excreted uh, cholesterol as a way of recycling it. You know, it's 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 an efficiency thing. It's like, well, if I take in this uh, cholesterol from the colon, then I, I don't have to produce more. So by taking in fiber, you kind of bypass that and it clings onto the cholesterol and you don't absorb that anymore. But then you just, you know, you're forcing your body to work harder to produce more cholesterol that it needs. So it's just, again, complete crazy paradigm. Well, I think it's just like uh, <clears throat> the other topics that we've been talking about today. You know, there's a lot of misinformation on that, and there's a lot of uh, paradigms that the kind of mainstream diet world and the medical world kind of pick up on and, you know, run with. Um, <clears throat> and now, um, fortunately, a lot more people are, are learning about these things like, uh, you know, cholesterol, like the high-fat diet, um, like carbohydrates, um, fiber, and fruits and vegetables. I mean, we still see a lot of people, you know, turning to the uh, the vegan vegetarian lifestyle, which is, and I certainly don't want to, you know, malign anybody for the choices that they make, um, just to point out that uh, you need to be really careful with these things, look at the evidence, look at what it has done to other people, and, um, you know, look at the, the beneficial effects of the uh, of the high-fat, low-carb diet, um, 
and really all of the uh, the data that goes into that. Um, there is a lot, uh, and there's a lot that can be found. Um, basically, if you just kind of take some time to do your research and keep an open mind, um, and try not to run with the uh, you know the single blog post that you found about one topic, even if it agrees with what you said. Like you know, if I if I find one because I talked about nitrates earlier, like if I find one blog post about nitrates and they're like, oh, nitrates are good, well, like that's even that is not you know not the way you should do it. You should take the time. To, to go through the evidence, look at the studies, and um, really spend some time reading on the topic. Because if you don't spend your own energy learning about something, then you haven't really absorbed the information. Um, and mm-hmm. just doing what you're told, and kind of you know being an authoritarian follower, um, you know in any of these uh, realms, is uh, is negative. Has negative outcomes because then you don't understand what you're doing with your body. So. Um, Let's see. We have uh, an interesting pet health segment today from Zoya. I think we're going to go to that for a little while, if you guys are good, unless you have anything else to add before that. Um, no, I think we're good. No? Cool. Um, so Zoya is going to talk to us today a little bit about fleas and uh, flea repellents for your pets. Um, and after we come back from this, uh, the recipe for today is how to make uh, pancetta. And so since we were talking about cured meats and, uh, and nitrates, I wanted to go over that. It is a little bit good, so I'll just kind of do the overview when I do that, and then I'll post a link to the recipe in the chat so people can investigate that further. Um, so we will be right back after this. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I'm going to talk about home remedies to get rid of fleas. This Wingless, creepy insects called fleas can give you sleepless nights, indeed. Fleas love to survive on warm uh, vertebrae and lose your dogs, rabbits, cats, and in fact, even you can be the hosts. One reason for their overwhelming presence in your house is the fact that the eggs of fleas can get dropped anywhere inside your house. These eggs can turn into larvae and finally into fleas. What's irritating is that flea eggs can remain dormant for over a year and that's why sometimes when you have treated your home and felt as if it is now fleas-free, they appear from nowhere. And that's why uh, you need to be on a regular watch and clean your home frequently once you have eliminated fleas. Here are some effective home remedies for fleas with which you can not only kill the fleas but can also control their recurrence. So the first remedy is uh, a spray to get rid of fleas from your house. Uh, If you have been thinking of a flea bomb loaded with chemicals to eliminate fleas from your house, you must reconsider once and uh, give a try to this herbal spray instead. This homemade flea spray uses such ingredients as lemon juice and witch hazel. They are entirely safe for your pets and kids. Here is the recipe for this herbal flea spray. You need to get vinegar, one gallon, it's a little less than four liters. Water, half a gallon, a little less than two liters. Uh, Lemon juice, uh, a little less than 500 milliliters. And witch hazel, uh, a little less than 250 milliliters. You need one fresh vacuum bag and also home and garden sprayer that is able to hold at least 6-7 liters at a time. So what you need to do is uh, first 
vacuuming and then spraying with a flea spray. Collect everything that cannot be vacuumed and wash it at the hottest setting of your washer. This kills even the larvae and eggs of fleas. Now you need to vacuum properly each corner, each uh, piece of the carpet, everything. After that, you need to, uh, to use the fresh vacuum bag. This ensures unrestricted airflow. Uh, debris that collects from earlier vacuuming may hamper a smooth airflow. Now you need to mix vinegar, water, lemon juice and witch hazel. Seal this liquid mix into the garden sprayer. Spray using a heavy spray. Spray your carpets, furniture, bed bedding, window sills, floors, every nook and corner of your house. Do this daily for at least 2-7 days, depending upon how bad is the flea infestation in your home. When fleas become less noticeable, you may then repeat every 3-4 days and thereafter once a week throughout the flea season. If you start using the non-toxic spray just when the flea season is approaching, uh, you will need to spray only once a week throughout the flea season. Now, the second remedy is salt remedy to get rid of fleas. Maybe it sounds too simple, but salt can get, uh, get you rid of tough fleas, especially from your carpets. How does it happen? Uh, salt becomes a dehydration agent for fleas and dries out their bodies. So, how to use this inexpensive way to control fleas? Here what you need to do. You need to get table salt or any of the sea salts. You will need a lot, a uh, lot of it, depending upon the size of area where you need to sprinkle salt to kill fleas. And you also need a large spice bottle with a shaker top. You need to do this. See if your salt is finally ground or not. If not, grind it to get a fine salt powder. Fill up uh, your spice bottle with the salt, leaving a little room uh, on the top so that you can shake and sprinkle the salt from it. Sprinkle the salt over your carpets in each room. The salt should cover the area evenly. Leave it for 12 to uh, 48 hours and after 1-2 days vacuum thoroughly. The third remedy is how to use the atomaceous earth to control fleas. Now, what is this, the, the atomaceous earth? It is the microscopic remains of fossilized algae diatoms. It is a very fine powder, just like flour. And diatoms are the type of algae that can be found in fresh water as well as in salt water. But how does this uh, diatomaceous earth kill fleas? The cell walls of the atom are made of silica, which in turn is a component of glass. The exoskeleton on a hard shell of fleas or uh, such other insects are vulnerable to the sharp edges of microscopic diatoms. The silica shards in DE cut through the, sh the hard shell of fleas and dry them out. This leads to death of fleas as well as uh, of their larvae. What is more important is that DE, or the atomaceous earth, is non-toxic to human beings, beings and animals. But the only one which belongs to food grade category and not the, the one used for pool filtration systems. So pay attention to this. So how to use uh, the atomaceous earth to get rid of fleas? 
Here are the steps that you should follow to use it. Brush off all your carpets and vacuum thoroughly. Wash off everything that you can to vacuum with hot water in your washer. Now, wherever you think the fleas or the larva might hide, sprinkle the DE in thin layers. You can safely sprinkle DE on your carpets, pet beddings, etc. Leave the diatomaceous earth in all these places for about 12 up to 48 hours. While fleas start dying 4-6 hours after you treat your home with the DE, it's still better to leave the sink for longer. Now, vacuum away all the powder and remember to discard the vacuum bag. You may even use this diatomaceous earth in your yard, but this will need a larger quantity of the powder. Uh, one word of precaution. Always buy the food grade diatomaceous earth. While this diatomaceous earth is non-toxic, it is still a fine powder that may get messy and irritate your eyes or throat. So it is desirable to wear a face mask while working with any such fine talc-like powder. Don't even buy diatomaceous earth used for pool filtration systems as they are hazardous when uh, breathed in. Diatomaceous earth, however, is not so effective in humid environments and also when it is wet. Use it only uh, in dry form. Try to avoid the ease from coming in contact on this, of the skin of your pets as these may dry out the skin. Another remedy is using a penny royal herb to repel fleas. There are many varieties of the penny royal herb. Uh, there is a European penny royal and American penny royal that uh, have been traditionally used to deter fleas. However, penny royal, which belongs to the mint family, is dangerous for human and animal health. Native Americans uh, had been using this herb for abortion and uh, dogs and cats too can face fertility problems if this herb is used for them. They may even die if the pennyroyal essential oil is licked by them or its leaves are, chewed, uh, are chewed, chewed by them. However, when you don't want to kill fleas and just want to repel them, you may like to use pennyroyal, but use it with all precautions. Ways to use pennyroyal for fleas. You can grow pennyroyal plant around your yard, especially where your dogs love to be. However, safeguard them in a way that they stay out of their reach. Uh, you can crush a handful of fresh pennyroyal leaves in a mortar and uh, pestle until the leaves uh, release oil and aroma. Tie this paste of pennyroyal leaves in a cheesecloth. Be careful about not dropping any juice of the leaves. Hang this uh, cheesecloth in your room or any other place with, uh, which is badly infested by fleas. Ensure to keep it out of reach of children and pets. Also let your family members know about this herb and uh, how you are using it so they don't try to experiment with it in any way. Pour one three drops of pennyroyal essential oil onto your dog's collar. Tie this collar to around your dog's, necks, uh, do dog's neck in such a way that oil doesn't come, up, uh, come in contact with your pet's skin. If you see the dog itching or any other sign of allergy, remove the collar. 
Another method will be to place a small amount of dried pennyroyal herb into some tea bags and leave these tea bags on the floor. If you have kids and pets around, keep them at a height where they cannot reach these tea bags. You may sew clothes tubes filled with dried pennyroyal and use them as collars for your cat. Now, the last remedy is using rosemary for flea control. If your house is not badly infested by fleas, but yes, if it's irritating due to even a mild flea infestation, uh, you can use the herb rosemary for controlling such flea problem in your house. You can use rosemary for flea control in several ways, as a powder, a rinse, or an oil. While dogs can be washed with uh, rosemary water, uh, made by boiling rosemary leaves in water, cats should not be given this uh, treatment due to certain uh, reactions in them. Rosemary oil can be poured only a couple of drops in your pet's collar. However, because we are discussing flea control for overall house, uh, here is a recipe for rosemary powder that you can use anywhere in your home. So, how to make this powder? You need to get equal parts of rosemary, rue, wormwood, fennel, peppermint, and a coffee grinder or mortar and a pestle. You need to do uh, what you need to do is take all the herbs and grind them together using a mortar and pestle or in a coffee grinder. You need to grind them until they become fine powder. And then you sprinkle this herbal powder on your carpet, furniture, pet bedding, uh, below furniture, window sills, or anywhere else where you think there may be fleas. So uh, this is a natural free repellent and not a way to kill fleas. This is, you must remember. So this is it for today. I hope the information was useful. Uh, have a nice day and goodbye. Thanks, Zoya. That was very helpful, and <clears throat> uh, I'm sure that anyone who has been through a flea infestation can attest to the uh, the difficulty of getting rid of it. Um, and so, mm -hmm. like Zoya said, uh, I would say, you know, do the preventative measures first, um, you know, to try to stop it from happening. But if it does happen, stay on top of it and do all those things religiously, uh, or you you will regret it. I promise. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I had fleas once, and it took me many months to get rid of them. It was like about five months um, okay. before they were fully gone from the house. But once they get into your carpet, they are there for the long haul. <laughs> so, well, um, let's see. Just to uh, to wrap up our show today, I have a uh, a recipe for for pancetta, and this is not a very simple recipe. It's actually pretty complex, and so. I'm going to just kind of give the short version, and uh, right now I'm going to paste the link uh, to this into the chat. Um, this is from a website called Our Daily Brine, which is actually a really cool site. Uh, I'd encourage people to check it out. He's got a lot of interesting recipes on there for different things. Um, so the only thing, the only ingredient in here that I would actually leave out is the brown sugar. Um, he does include brown sugar in his recipe, and I believe that that's just for flavor, and so that's something that you can leave out um, if you're avoiding sugar, which I would uh, encourage you to, to leave that out. Um, <clears throat> another main point that, uh, that this guy makes in his recipe is um, 
to use measurements uh, by weight and not by, you know, teaspoons or a quarter or eighth of a teaspoon, um, but instead to get a good kitchen scale and weigh out your ingredients uh, so that you have very precise measurements. And so that's what this recipe is based on. And there's actually on this site, um, there is a little uh, a printable worksheet uh, that's pretty cool that you can, you can download and print out um, where you can write down your quantities, what you used, and then the timing uh, that you're doing. So the cure, um, the mixture for the cure. Now, this is, uh, there's another handy chart here that shows uh, percent of meat weight, um, uh, what that should be for each thing. Um, and he works off of a, a weight, uh, the, so the pork belly, this is with a, a pork belly, um, and his, the pork belly in this recipe is 2,885 grams, which is uh, 6.36 pounds. Um, so some may be a little bigger, some may be smaller. Um, the pork bellies that I've seen usually come around like 8 to 10 pounds, so you'll want to do your measurements according to the percentages, but this handy little chart on the site here gives the percentage of the meat weight for each thing. Um, so if you're going with, uh, you know, 6.36 pounds or 285 grams of pork belly, um, you want uh, 80.5 grams of salt, seven and a quarter grams of the uh, cure, which is the insta-cure, which is preg powder number one or two, depending on how you're going to do the, uh, the pancetta. And again, just to reiterate, there's a very long article on this page that goes through the entire process in detail and explains, you know, why you would either want to do a dry cure or a wet cure or how long you want to do it. Um, so that's seven and a quarter grams of the preg powder, one or two. Um, going to leave out the brown sugar. Um, black pepper, 52 grams. Red pepper flakes, 14.5 grams. Juniper berries, um, you can use dried or fresh juniper berries, 14.5 grams. Garlic powder, seven and a quarter grams, dried thyme, seven and a quarter grams, and four point three grams of dried bay leaves. Um, now this cure is basically mixed up, you know, blended, uh, you know, blend everything together and mix it up. Uh, the bay leaves you want to crush and mix them as well. Um, and the process itself is actually pretty simple and straightforward, but you do want to be very careful about how you prepare it and about your timing. But you grind and apply the cure to the pork belly on both sides. Wrap tightly with a cling wrap or a vacuum seal and put it in the refrigerator. Now, in the refrigerator, during this time, you cure it for two weeks or more. Um, some people go as long as a whole month on this pro uh, part of the process. But you want it um, in an anaerobic environment in the refrigerator so that it stays cool. But what this does is the salt and the spices, the salt is essentially moving the spices through the muscle tissue of the, the pork belly and through the fat during this time. So every couple of days, you go into the fridge, take your pork belly and flip it over so that gravity will then pull those um, flavors down through the pork and then flip it again and continue to do that every couple of days. Um, after two weeks or your determined time, uh, remove uh, from the cure, rinse it off, and pat dry the pork belly so you get it dry. Um, then coat the meat side of the belly, not the fat side, but the meat side, thoroughly in cracked black pepper to really like rub it in and get it totally coated. And then roll it up um, just like a towel. So you just, as tightly as you can, roll up the entire thing and then tie the ends with a butcher's knot and truss it tightly. Trussing is where you kind of do a series of knots 
and wraps down the length of the pork belly so that it's all held together very tightly. And again, on this page that I've linked to, uh, there, there's a link to a demo video on how to do the butcher's knot and how to truss. Um, so that's really handy there. Um, then you want to tag with the date uh, that you hung the meat um, and also put the weight of the meat on your tag because you're going to be watching for how much uh, weight is lost from, from the original meat because it will lose some water weight over time. So for semi-dry pancetta, which must be cooked, um, that's where you can use cure number one because it has a little bit shorter of a time. Uh, you can hang to dry for three weeks to one month. And for fully dried pancetta, which means you can eat it without cooking it, um, you, you want to use cure number two for that because it's designed to last a little bit longer. And then hang until enough water weight has been lost, about 15 to 20% of the weight loss for a fattier pork belly or 20 to 25% weight loss for a leaner, uh, meatier pork belly. So you want to, that's why you want to write down your original weight and then check, you know, after you hung it for uh, a period of time, uh, say up to a month or a little bit longer. Uh, and then you can check your weight, see how much weight is lost, and you can tell kind of what stage the, the curing is at. Uh, when it's done curing, it should feel firm uh, when you squeeze it. Um, and then basically, like, you can just slice it up at that point, take off the uh, the twine and slice it up very thin, and you have uh, pancetta. Now, this is something that I have not personally tried yet, but I'm going to be trying it uh, pretty soon here and uh, and giving it a shot. Um, for people who are worried about botulism, uh, that's the reason that we've kind of talked about nitrates today, and um, that's the reason why this uh, curing powder is used in this solution is to prevent the spread of botulism. And so this is a safe process. Um, it's proven. Um, but if you decide to do it without the curing salt, I can't guarantee that it'll be safe. And that's something that he says in this article here, too. Um, so you need to be really careful about that. And as always with any kind of aged meat, um, if it smells funny, throw it out. You, you know, trust your nose. Um, and you hate to waste the whole pork belly, but you also don't want to get sick. So um, just be careful about that. But that's, the, uh, that's, that's kind of the general recipe for pancetta. Um, and let's see, I can put the, uh, the link to this <clears throat> in our show description on Blog Talk Radio as well uh, so that people can see it there. And I'd encourage you to, to poke around this site, that they, our Daily Brine, and check out some of the other recipes that are there too. Great. So, Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm really excited. I'm going to be trying some pancetta. Mm-hmm. So, what's that? No, I was just pronouncing it telling way to, you know, <laughs> give it a nice touch. <laughs> What's the Italian way? Pancetta. Pancetta. Oh, pan, pancetta. There, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one thing that I've, I've been interested in kind of getting into is that apparently uh, back in the day uh, when, you know, a whole pig was butchered, these different types of um uh, sausages, you know, pancetta, sopracetta, uh, capicol, different things like that, were all designed to come uh, to be ready at a different part of the year. And so you would butcher mm. the pig, uh, and then you would hang up all the sausages, and then they would all be ready at different times throughout the year, so the pig would actually last the entire year. And then you have different mm. different uh, cured meats that are associated with different holidays, you know, or with different times of the year, um, because that's when they're ready. So, um there's some really interesting yeah, information on that. 
yeah. If you look up charcuterie on, on YouTube, I mean, there's hundreds, hundreds of videos. Um, and uh, But I'll see maybe for next week if I can find this one that I'm thinking of, uh, which is these uh, Italian chefs that go through that entire process and explain how the pig is preserved for the year, right down to the, the tripe and the, the snout and the brain and everything. So, hmm. yeah. Mm, sounds good. Mm, tripe. <laughs> all right cool well um i guess i'd like to uh to thank everybody for tuning in today appreciate our chat participants and um be sure to turn into the tune into the other uh two shows on the sot radio network uh the truth perspective tomorrow at 2 p.m eastern on saturday and on sunday behind the headlines also at 2 p.m eastern um, they're great shows. We're going to have some really interesting information coming up. Um, so be sure to check those out and we will be back, uh, next week, um, on Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, with, uh, uh, right now, uh, our plan is to have an interview with Yarrow Willard. Did I pronounce that right, Doug? Yeah. Yeah. Yarrow Willard. Okay. Yarrow Willard. Cool. He's a, he's an herbalist and runs an herbal company called Harmonic Arts. And so we're going to be interviewing Yarrow, and that should be a great show. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll see everybody next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.